This is an special episode dedicated to immigrant youth and their dreams. The students, the professionals, the fighters. The future may feel uncertain under a new president who has pledged to deport you or someone you know, but you have the power to turn fear and anxiety into new skills and new opportunities to advocate for yourself and for others. This is episode 8 with Shannon Underwood. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. Elections are over. Trump won and he has pledged to cancel DACA, a program passed by President Obama through an executive order in 2012 to protect dreamers from deportation undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. Whether Trump will carry out his plans to cancel DACA or not is up for speculation, as he'll need to compromise on some issues in an effort to get Congress to work with him and unify the country. In the meantime, dreamers should prepare for a worst-case scenario, or better, or better said by one of my previous podcast guests in a recent Facebook post. A takeaway I've learned from this election is that no matter what anyone says, we must prepare to stand with and for our communities. We can be hopeful and ready at the same time. Luis Ortega. My guest in this episode is an award-winning immigration attorney recognized by Super Lawyers magazine as a rising star for five consecutive years. Her name is Shannon Underwood, and in 2009, she was the legal strategist behind a successful national effort to fight my deportation, before DACA even existed. In this episode, we talk about her journey to becoming an immigration attorney, what could happen if dreamers lose DACA, the role of activism in fighting deportations, and more. And I am here with Shannon, finally. It is an honor to be here with you. I know these are difficult times for you as an immigration attorney. And the fact that you're making this time to to contribute and kind of share as much as you can to help those right now uh, who are in fear of what Trump could do, uh, it really means a lot to me and a whole bunch of people. So thank you so much, Anna, for doing this. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, before we get started, uh, I wanted to learn, just touch a little bit about, you know, yourself. Like, what was your childhood like? How? Tell me a little bit about Shannon. So, I, I mean, I came... I was extraordinarily blessed as a child. I was raised in a very loving home. I was raised in a middle, upper class um, suburb environment where my family put family first. My dad worked really hard and my mom worked part time and then stayed home to take care of me and my sisters. Um, they they did everything to make sure we were taken care of in every way and, and provided for our future in terms of encouraging us, you know, for a higher education and and all of these things. It was a very... Um, blessed childhood and also very sheltered. I was not exposed to much diversity as a child. What little I was exposed to was in tiny pockets. And I was, I wouldn't say protected, but sheltered entirely from sort of the world that existed outside of my small bubble that I was raised in, quite honestly. Who, who influenced you most growing up? You know, as a very young person, I don't have a lot of memories of there being like a role model in my life in terms of just everyday sort of someone that was inspiring me. And I think that's because I, I had no reason to reach outside of my home to look for anything because we were quite happy and healthy. But as I 
became an older child into adolescence. Um, mm-hmm. One of my grandfathers was a, just a huge inspiration to me. He was different than the rest of my family in many ways, at least my nuclear family. He was um, Jewish mm-hmm. and had told stories as I was a child of, of his family leaving Europe during the Holocaust, oh. um, immigrating to the United States, you know, facing adversity and a lot of really troubling things that I was not used to hearing or being exposed to in any way. Um, And yet, at the same time, even though he was one of the most, even though he had faced more diversity than anyone that I had known as a child, he was also the most loving, tolerant, compassionate um, person that I witnessed. So to kind of see that, I think it ended up really having a deep impact on me and sort of my path as I moved through um, adolescence. And quite honestly, with with sort of the, the way that I looked at um, tolerance, my family was quite conservative and all of the people around me were as well. And as I got older and I started having my own views on things, he he, he didn't have the same views as them. And he made it, me feel okay that I could have other belief systems that may not have been traditional for where I was raised. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you to your grandfather then, because now Absolutely. that made you get into immigration. And I know you started uh, your career in law as an intern for a nonprofit I- immigration organization. Would you say that was mainly the influence of your grandfather or was there something else that led to that? No, I, I mean, it was kind of an accident. I think in hindsight, my grandfather's experience as an, his family as an immigrant must have had planted a seed for me, but it was not, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I went to law school and I wanted to do civil rights law. And I was really focused on gay rights legislation and I wanted to definitely fight a cause. And I also had quite a bit of interest in international human rights, but I didn't know much about what all of that meant. I just knew I wanted to fight and fight for people, fight for people who didn't have a voice. And I saw a job posted working at an immigration nonprofit. And I did not even recognize at that point in my life what immigration was as a as a body of law. I didn't even know about it. I didn't know anyone who had talked to me about it from a legal perspective. And everything about the job just sort of spoke to me. It was working with disenfranchised communities, and some of it was going to be on the border going into Mexico and working in the community. Mm-hmm. And it felt like all the things I wanted to do, civil rights and international communities. And I applied for the job and I got it. And that then put me on a path that I never left. Wow. Yes. Now, I wanted to talk about DACA. Yes. It's a program that was passed through an executive order by President Obama to help the undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children, best known as DREAMers, by giving them a basically protection from deportation and grant them work permits. So many of them right now are not longer in fear of deportation because of this program, but also they have jobs that they've been able to to get because of this program. Now, there is a lot of fear right now because a president-elect, Donald Trump, has pledged to remove that executive order, which basically would leave all of these dreamers in a very uncertain situation. That could mean losing their job, even if they don't get deported immediately. Uh, and I know you recently had a emergency uh, call, one hour briefing uh, from the main, organi- main organization, someone from DC, I think. Uh, what was uh, about the risk of what's going to happen? What would you say were the highlights of, of that briefing? 
So, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty now. There's definitely no one that can say with any kind of certainty what is going to happen. But the message that we received was, number one, to be ready, um, mm-hmm. to not wait to start advising our clients and preparing them for the possibilities. Um, there's just a very short period of time till the president elect will take over and, and it gives us just enough time to start sort of focusing on who our clients are that have already received DACA Mm -hmm. and who might be in the pipeline to be applying or waiting for results. And and Mm -hmm. what we were advised is to treat each of these groups of people quite differently. First, um, we were advised that we should expect that DACA will be taken away. Mm-hmm. And that if that happens, then anyone who's already received it is in a system and and we need to be advising them, you know, just sort of what the expectation may be. Um, at this point, I think it's it would be foolish to start instilling a bunch of fear in people about what that might mean. But they need to be aware that there is that their DACA will likely go away and we need to start thinking about what their other options may be um, for the people who have not applied yet we were told that we need to have a strong decision with them about whether they should. Um, I have several clients whose applications are sitting on my desk, ready Mm -hmm. to be sent. And I actually have to call each and every one of them and and tell them, do you still want to quote unquote, come out of the shadows, which is what people talk about doing in order to put your application into a database that at this point, we're not sure what will, will happen with these people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the advice we're getting is probably not to file those applications. Now, then we have people who are in the process of renewing. Yes. And those people are sort of in an, in a combination of these two scenarios. They're in the database. They're renewing. What do we do with them? And what we've been told is because they've already um, received the protection in the past, we should probably go ahead and file for them if they're expiring between now and April um, with the hope that their application will get through and there'll be some sort of a sunset, meaning that they've received their card and if this program goes away, they at least have longer longer time time, or potentially there might be a law passed that protects people who filed before the change in precedent. So that's, that's what we've been told. What we've also been told is that anyone who has any um, case that's not necessarily completely perfectly strong, for example, criminal issues or some sort of mm-hmm. gap in being able to prove the eligibility requirements needs to think twice about whether or not to file. Oh. And also anyone who's received advanced parole to travel with DACA mm-hmm. should probably not leave the country under that permission, even though they've already received it, because there's a good chance that upon travel, something could happen and they may not get back into the country. So, Dreamers... Uh, basically told feds where they live under DACA. If that program is removed, they'll become subject to deportation like everybody else. Um, should they move? So this this is a question that's that's haunting me right now. Um, you know, it's and let me just say, DACA is one really easily identifiable group, but we have lots of immigrants who've turned in lots of types of petitions right. explaining where they live. And and some of those people are in a line that is very long. And, and in the past, the government has mostly not used that database to go looking for these people. They've let them stay and continue their lives until mm-hmm. they get to the front of their line, whether mm-hmm. that's months or years. Um, we have not in the past seen that sort of action. Um, it would be foolish of me to say it's not possible. I personally think that living in a complete state of fear and changing your entire life right now in anticipation of something that would take quite a bit of resources to do is Mm -hmm. 
is not what I'm going to advise my clients to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that that is the maybe the right approach to this. I think that um, we need to to wait and see a bit of what happens. And I also want to remind people that. The truth is, if the government were to pass some sort of directive in the future to go after, you know, go and remove all these people, pick them up, register them, they will find you if they want to. And I'm not trying to scare people into, I mean, I just said I don't want to scare people. But the truth is, if they want to find someone in today's world, it's not that difficult. Mm -hmm. And so, I just quite frankly think that there's other ways to sort of combat this fear rather than running back and hiding and, and, you know, making strong efforts to try to prevent that from happening by making it clear that, that our country isn't going to stand for that Got and, it. and sort of standing up against that instead, that would be a better option in my opinion. And we'll touch a little bit on that in an upcoming question, but a lot of major cities like Seattle, LA and New York have pledged to continue to be sanctuary cities for for immigrants, despite the Trump presidency, yes, uh, this is pretty obvious because most of the these cities have voted for somebody else. And what does that mean for undocumented immigrants? Well, it means uh, several things. One is that it means that people who are, for example, have contact with law enforcement, mm-hmm. whether it is. As a victim of a crime, for example, there are places in this country where you are not safe reporting a crime if you're undocumented because the police will then turn around and pick you up for being an undocumented person. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, in cities like Seattle, our, our police has vouched not to do that. We actually have situations in Seattle where um, certain l- low-level criminals who are picked up for more, like, infractions and things that aren't violent or serious Mm -hmm. are not reported to immigration. And uh, it's a general commitment to a lifestyle of not turning the community and the law enforcement agencies into, into ICE agents, that we're going to let immigration do their job and we are going to continue to respect the rights of immigrants, whether they're undocumented or not, and make sure they have access to the resources that a city has to offer to them such as protection for, under the laws. Got it. it. But if ICE wanted to go to uh, somebody who lost DACA, if they wanted to, they could? Correct. And then the sanctuary city status doesn't really matter at that point, right? That's right. It's it's. I think there's a common misperception that a city who's considering themselves a sanctuary city has some authority to stop the, the, the lawful process that immigration has to potentially arrest or remove or start removal proceedings against an individual who has violated the immigration laws or is here without status. Um, but there is there's definitely, um, it is a safer place to be in a sanctuary city. And a lot of that is because you're around a community who respects um, the difference between the law enforcement and the immigration laws and wants to make sure people feel safe. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the potential of uh, immigration rate for the easiest people to to do that with, which is, would, in this case, would be people who are in the system. They already know they're here and documented, right? I'm sure it would be easier for the government to, to come up with whatever document they need to legally come and arrest you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what would be the best legal or in general, any other strategies um, that, that people could use or leverage before, during, and after a raid of this sort? Um, 
to basically achieve the best uh, outcome to resist deportation. Sure. So people need to know what their rights are. Mm -hmm. um, whether you have paperwork in this country and whatever that is, if you're not a citizen, you still have rights under the Constitution and you have the right to remain silent. And I recommend that people do that and that they seek advice from an immigration organization or attorney prior to making any decisions within their immigration case. You have the right to not be subject to an unlawful search and seizure. You have the right to keep your door closed if someone doesn't have a lawful warrant to enter your premises. So, um, you know, if, if an agent comes to someone's door and says, you know, let us in, if they don't have a warrant from a judge to search that house or to arrest an individual residing there, they don't have to open the door or let that person in. Um, if a person is brought into custody, as I said before, remaining silent is very important, but I think that It is, it is a very scary time when someone is either um, confronted by an agent or, of course, arrested or taken into custody. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of misconception about what power those agents have and what the process looks like after this. For example, there's a common misperception that people can just be deported. Mm -hmm. Like that officer can just deport them on the spot. And for some people, um, there are... For people who've been previously ordered deported, for example, they have a different um, standard. But for individuals who've never been brought into the system or who have never received a removal order in the past, they, they, don't, they cannot be automatically deported. They have the right to see a judge. They will be brought in front of someone to fight for their case. They will be asked if they're mm -hmm. able to do these things. And so um, people often will sign under the fear of being kept in custody or being told by agents that they're going to stay in a jail for years and that they're terrified and they've got a child at home that they want to go back Correct. and see. And so they sign and then they have signed over a potential case that they may have been able to win. So I really encourage people to remain silent and seek advice before they make any decisions and to, you know, advocate their rights and tell their neighbors and everyone around them that they don't have to willingly open their doors and let people come into their homes. They, they, they have rights and they need to really, you know, But there is something they can bring where you will have to open the door, right? If Especially if they already know. There is, yes. Right? They're not profiling you. They're, they know that you're here and documented. So they can say, hey, we have a order of whatever name that is. Yes. A there, warrant, I guess. Yes, there is a warrant. But I will tell you that it's they don't have one most of the time. Um, now, our fugitive agents who are looking for people who have run away. Correct. Um, they are going to have a warrant usually. Mm -hmm. But quite often agents are, you know, out, they, they might be looking for one person, but then they arrest everyone that they come in, in touch with on the way. And that warrant is specific to an individual or, a, or an address, you know, you're not, you're not subject to just being arrested by merely being in that household with someone else, unless you expose yourself to that by, by, by saying, yes, come on in. Yes. I'll answer your questions. So, um, Yes, there is a warrant. And yes, if an officer has one, the person should definitely cooperate, cooperate after making sure they know what is, is in that. But my advice is to make sure that that is, exists before even making any decisions. Mm, okay. Um, so, you know, based, based on my experience through, through this type of situation, uh, usually, let's say you get a, uh, a warrant, they'll send you to a detention center. And then, then you can, I guess, 
ask for a, I forgot what there is the hearing. So, so they basically let you wait. You don't have to be in the, wait in the detention center. I forgot what the hearing is called. So some people can have a bond hearing, certain people. A bond hearing. Yes. But let's say we're just, if for this specific uh, discussion, focusing on DACA mm-hmm. students, most of them, not criminal, student professionals. We're talking about the best profile for an undocumented immigrant possible. Most of them will qualify for a bond. Is that correct? The, the standard to receive a bond is that you prove that you're not a danger to the community. Which, yeah, exactly. And that you aren't a flight risk. And a flight risk is the area where sometimes judges use this catch-all for people, which means, well, if you have no other way to fight your case, you might run away. So um, looking at it from a distance of dealing with someone who's been here their whole life and is a professional and has exactly. done nothing but contribute to society, I think it seems quite obvious that they should have a good chance of getting a bond. I certainly can't state with certainty that that will happen for everyone mm-hmm. um, because we see cases that we're quite surprised by. But yes, it is something that people should be pursuing and taking seriously, not just coming in and saying, look, I'm a great person. You should let me out. They need Correct. to really just demonstrate that. Okay, let's say I have uh, superpowers and I can I can f- see the future and I know I'm going to be in this court hearing uh, trying to prove that I'm not a flight of risk. What can I do in the meantime to make myself the best candidate to get this bond approved so, so that I can, let, let's say, continue fighting against deportation outside of a detention center where <laughs> that is very difficult to do, especially because it really costs a lot of money, first That's of right. all, to talk to somebody from that place. That's right. So so before I tell you what to do to get out on bond, I'll tell you what people should do to try to not be in the detention center in the first place, which mm-hmm. is that there is this sort of transition when someone is brought into custody or asked to check in mm-hmm. where the initial officer who is often not in the detention center, they're at a facility that it does not have the actual detention center will be making a decision about whether to take that person into custody. Hmm. And if the person is properly prepared with either documents and or a lawyer and or the right sort of information, that officer has the discretion to release them from, from, from detention, quote unquote, to not take them into detention by either doing it through a bond or on their own recognizance, meaning that they're that they believe that they're going to show up and they're not going to require them to pay money. Or in certain circumstances, there's like an ankle bracelet or other sort of supervision mechanisms that can be put into place. So I would encourage people to be ready to try to do that and not end up at the detention center by having, you know, an attorney that they trust that can step in and, and starting to collect the, the information that I'll tell you, you would be the same that you would want for a bond. Um, what you need to show is... Um, that you have good character that comes in a lot of forms. It, we, we collect everything from ties the person has to the community and country. That may be family members with legal status. Lots of people have children, for example, that were born here. It may be everyone at work has written a letter to talk about what a great person this is. Mm. The, the boss has said this, uh, you know, I would hire this person a million times over. Endorsements. Endorsements. Um, we also submit proof that the person has paid their taxes, has gone to school, has um, taken classes in the community or volunteered to kind of make themselves or their community a better place. For some people, that's a church, and for other people, that might be volunteering at a local shelter or things like this. Uh, and then we ask people to bring as much evidence as they can that they um have every reason to show up in the future, which basically boils down to a legal argument of what they'll be able to do moving forward so that the judge can really 
feel satisfied when they release this person that they aren't going to disappear. Mm -hmm. And the stability of a person's life in the community really helps us make that argument that this person isn't going to just, you know, mm -hmm. run away per se. Now let's go back to the bond. You said even before you go to the detention center, they, they could make the decision, the officer in this other facility, not the detention center to uh, release you on a bond. Um, during my experience, that happens after you pay for the bond. So how would that work in that case? Is that something that they will, you have to pay on the spot? You pull your credit card and basically if you don't have the money at that moment, then they'll send you to detention. Essentially, yes. That's usually the case. And and you can't pay for a bond with credit card. So that's not going to help you. You have to have you know, the, the money available and be ready Check. to do that. It What's has to be a, 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 a postal money order or a certified check. It can't even be a regular check. So, so in one way, you have to already be prepared if somebody knocks your door to have a check ready of some sort for that to even happen, correct? Well, oh. you won't have a check ready because you won't know how much it's going to be and you'll have no way of predicting this. But you, you need to have someone that you can call and you need to be able to say to the officer, I have this person, whether it's my lawyer or my friend or my mother, uh -huh. who's going to show up with the amount that you, you know, I have, I have you know, $3,000, I can pay you right now. I, you know, here's the proof of why you shouldn't take me into detention. They can be here in an hour Got it. because you're correct. They are not going to hold you there longer than that day. They'll hold you for a day. You have a day to, to, to figure out how to pay it. Or a few hours if it's the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to send you probably to detention. Now I know it's very difficult to predict the amount of a bond, but to make it easier to, let's say, come up with a range by focusing on DACA students, non-criminal records, ties with the community, right? Everything you've mentioned, which I'm sure a lot of the people who fit that criteria will get ready for. Uh, what would be a range of a bond for something like that? If you have to, and I know there is no exact number, but having some amount in mind, I think would be beneficial for those to include in a as part of an emergency fund, which they should have already. Sure. <laughs> so if you're lucky enough to convince the officer pre-detention, then you're probably looking at something between $1,500 and $3,000. Okay. If you end up in detention, then I would say preparing for a $5,000 bond is is smart. Could it be more than that? Absolutely. We see mm -hmm. bonds that are much higher than that. But I do just want to reiterate that given the amount of, well, depending on the amount of resources that are put in the future into, you know, looking to take DACA away and, and finding these people and attempting to deport them or detain them. I have a very hard time seeing that DACA recipients, even if there is a push to remove the program and even ultimately remove them, I think detention is far-fetched. It would be very difficult. We already have full detention centers um, who are filled with priority cases, who are people who have are serious criminal records and, and are re repeated immigration violators. So I think it's very smart to be prepared. But again, I don't want people to waste too much time being concerned about that because I do not foresee, particularly where we live, but quite honestly, the detention centers are busy already. They're being at the capacity or desire for the government to start arresting and detaining DACA yeah. recipients. So, you know, once somebody's putting deportation proceedings, usually how long does the immigration court grants the deportee to, let's say, take care of things? 
in the U.S. like selling their assets or figure out figuring out what's next before they are asked to leave the country. Is is there a standard for that? Yes. So if you're talking about the an, the average DACA recipient who we're going to assume came to the country and has never had any immigration violations or history, they've never been ordered deported or anything like this. This individual is going to be placed into removal proceedings where an immigration judge in an immigration court has to review their their story before they ever even issue that deportation order. And that process alone is going to take months to years. Hmm. Um, For example, in Seattle right now, our courts are out to 2020. So the first step is already, we're talking years. And that is if you accept the initial decision. So if a person were to be ordered deported by the local court and they decided not to appeal it, then we're still talking years. But if they decide to appeal it, we have two courts above that. People sometimes are fighting their cases for a decade or more. However, when it when an order has been issued and it's final, um, what will quite often happen is that um, the the local ICE agents will tell them to come in and check themselves in and talk, have a conversation with them about removal. And when it's when the officer has decided that that's time, then there's kind of a negotiation effort that goes on. This is another really good place to have good evidence and an attorney potentially to help you negotiate that. We have, we regularly see sort of this idea that, okay, we're bringing you in and in 30 days, we want you to come back and show us proof that you'll be leaving within the next 30 days. So, you know, it's like a 30 to 90 day window that we see. Um, after after the, the year where they give you a date or something? After that order is issued and then it makes its way to immigration. So yeah. we are, you are really pushing out any possibility of these individuals mm-hmm. being removed. We are talking a year to decade long, years to yeah, decade long. I know process. you work in like very complex cases where there is many different variables that could even expand that time for right. some people who have, you know, other, but I'm, th- I'm thinking about like the simple case. It's just some, you know, he'll be fine if he goes back to their country. I mean, he has no way to prove there is danger for, for him or her. It's just very simple. They're here. They're professional students. There is no risks that they can prove from going back other than the the fact that they're leaving everything behind, right? And they're going to a country they don't speak the language or whatever. It, um, I would imagine that would even reduce the time so, because there is no much to... Right. So an individual who, who assuming has absolutely no other forms of relief, which mm-hmm. I encourage everyone to make sure someone verifies that with them before they make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they are in fact put into removal proceedings, they, they ultimately would have the choice. Let's say they didn't want to fight it and they, and they, all of those factors you just mentioned exist. They, they have no way to, and they really are going to end up going home. Um, then they they, I mean, they could speed up the process if they want to, but there's also a process called voluntary departure in which they're asking to leave on their own and they're not pers- leaving pursuant to a removal order. In that situation, you're still talking about many months to a year f- until the judges get to their case. And then from there, a 30 to 60 day window, 90 days potentially of sort of the ICE officer saying, get your stuff together before we arrest and physically deport you ourselves. And if there's extenuating circumstances then there's a way to negotiate a longer stay for those people. For those looking into uh, get ready by getting staying connected with advocacy groups and some maybe trying to replicate some of the stuff that I did, which I'll share in the show notes of this episode. Um, what was your what were your thoughts about how that played out during? Well, in your particular case, we had such you had such a 
massive backing that it made it really difficult for the local agents to ignore you. And that why? Because of how many people were were behind the effort and who who were connected. So so what happens is, you know, you have your local people making decisions. Uh-huh. And in a lot of these cases, they're making them with little um, spotlight. But when you have the possibility that a case is going to break open and the media is involved, which they were in your case, mm-hmm. um, decisions are made more carefully. And in your particular case, and we were never given the exact final outcome. I mean, quite frankly, we were never even given your decision in writing. It was all done very behind the scenes. But but you received a decision um, from the Secretary of De- Department of Homeland Security, and that is because the internal channels were going up, up there, um, up to their supervisors, etc., to to look at this because because you had so many people engaged and involved, um, you know, and and some of those people being politicians who were openly advocating for writing a law. I mean, we have, you know, for you. And so in your case, I think it did nothing but help. Um, is there a, is there a theory or a, some speculation on my part that in certain situations, I think too much attention or um, too much pushback could negatively hurt someone? I think there probably is. I think that part of my job when we were working together on this was to sort of, you, you have to decide when you call in the press and when you call in the supporters, because sometimes if you can get something done quietly, you want to. Um, but you need someone that knows when to do those things. You know, when you call the media, you better be ready for whatever backlash you may get from that and know that the story is going to have a much better chance of helping than hurting. And because you had so many experts on your team making those decisions, I think it really benefited you tremendously. With the people that are getting uh, assigned to these positions, right? We're not going to have Janet Napolitano anymore. Uh, I would I would consider her a centrist more than left or right. Now, we're definitely expecting people far right coming into those type of positions. What would they care about? Let's say you can click with one button because you are running out of legal strategies and then you know that that has helped in the past with with me or to, to be able to advance or buy more time. Why would that click matter where you're creating all this press, all this media attention, all these people? Like why why is that important to them to react or take go off their way to do something different? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the way that you get any sort of reaction is that you build as much of the human humanity side to a case that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to you have to present something that can go beyond a piece of paper to to the officers at, who are reviewing these sorts of decisions so that they can connect with the individual in a way that's different than the average case, for example, mm-hmm. or all of the hundreds of people's files they looked at before Correct. yours, for example. Um, it's, it's difficult because everyone has a story, but you really have to try to show you know, the, the unique aspects of a case and the more community and the more, um, support a person has, the more that, that they are going to be paid attention to. And so people need to start thinking about what makes them unique, you know, what contributions they've made that they would talk about if they were asked to make a case for why they should stay. Um, they need to collect 
examples of those things. And they need to take this as the time that in most people's lives is very uncomfortable to talk about themselves, to actually talk about themselves, the great things that they've done, the, the contributions that they've made and reach out to people who are able to say those same things about them and, and talk about the details, not the, this is a great person they should get to stay. But the, you know, when I ran out of money and was homeless, this person took me in and fed me and my family. Those are things that speak to people. And we're going to have to really focus on those sides of the humanity if the law is against us. Then I think that's going to be the main way that we reach people in making discretionary decisions. Now, one of the things that you mentioned multiple times is the, important, the importance of being connected with an attorney. Now, let's flip the script for a little bit. If you were an immigrant looking for an attorney, for an immigration attorney, what would you look for? My advice to people is to a, a few things. First of all, do your research. Um, there's a, a, a lot of information out there about individuals' practices and their experience, um, some more trustworthy than others, obviously. What I say on my website about myself isn't necessarily the most reliable information, but there are lots of sources that post things, including this bar association where an individual lives that will talk about whether they've been disciplined and what their history is. So, so do your research about those things. Um, I recommend really looking at attorneys and firms that have been practicing immigration either exclusively or or mostly immigration and not a practice that does immigration as a tiny piece of their practice. And the reason for that is that immigration is extraordinarily complicated and you can't quite, you need someone who's doing this regularly and is kind of committed to this. Um, I, I wouldn't say you have to have someone who has decades and decades of experience, but I certainly recommend if you if you talk to someone who hasn't been practicing for very long to ask them questions. Um, you know, when you, I, I think that people are, I think it's, it's similar for lawyers as doctors. I think that patients and clients sort of go to these experts and expect that they just have to accept the person that they're speaking with as the person that they're going to work with and and a and that that person's just going to to take over the role and and guide them and and of course that's what we're supposed to do but you you know a client gets to choose who they work with there are hundreds and thousands of lawyers and so although it's expensive to meet with multiple lawyers if a person has made an informed decision and done some research and then they go to meet with someone and they're not satisfied with the meeting, then there's something that they probably should listen to in their gut. The majority of my clients who have switched from another attorney have told me that one of the reasons that they were you know, dissatisfied was that they just never felt a connection with that individual. And I think in a lot of areas of law, that's not so important. But in immigration, I mean, you're dealing with people's lives. And I think it's important that the client, they're paying lots of money and, and they need to feel like the person cares and is going to be responsive. Trust. Trusts them and 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 is going to not just see them as another number or case. And mm -hmm. I think that there are plenty of fantastic immigration attorneys who who have those skills. And I also think an individual needs to make sure that the attorney is capable of handling the case in terms of volume, you know, um, mm -hmm. making sure the person, the attorney they're working with has the enough amount of support or staff or whatever it is to um keep their client satisfied in terms of communication and and not let it fall behind. And so those are questions that a person can ask. I mean, they should ask questions when they meet with an attorney. Mm -hmm. Are there any third-party organizations, kind of like the Business Better Bureau, but for 
attorneys specifically that people can look for that's to gouge who to qualify or disqualify during their search? There, there are some things that a person could do to find lists. So for example, one recommendation I have is almost all, um, well, there's, there's nonprofits all over the country that serve immigrants. And some of them are legal representation and some of them do policy and other sorts of work. Most of those organizations keep lists of the attorneys that they recommend. Hmm. And I think that that can be a very valuable source because, resource because those organizations are committed to immigrants' rights and they are only going to put forth names of people that they feel are going to do the community a good service. So that's a great reference. I think that... Um, there is an, there's the American Immigration Lawyers Association, which um, has, you know, lists of people in the area. People can put in their zip code and find an attorney. It's not going to tell them much about that person's reputation or practice. But you can always go to the Bar Association's website, like I said, and get some of those facts. And, you know, the other thing that I found is is talk to people, uh, you know, ask your friends who they've used, ask everyone, you know, who's had an attorney, what their experience was. Did they love their attorney? Did they, did they think the attorney was the nicest person in the world, but not so great at the law? You know, ask the questions and, and get those names and, and use those referrals to, to make those decisions as well, because, um, you know, your, your friends or family who have gone through this will often have a really good way of giving you some advice about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk about legal fees and I know this can be very broad and, and that's why I'm coming back to the idea of the simple case DACA clean non-criminal no risks no reliefs other than he's been here for all their lives as a child brought by then the rest of the story um, and again back to the emergency fund all about readiness uh, what would be a smart amount to keep in mind as an addition to the emergency fund? So setting aside what you might have to pay for a bond and just looking at like legal fees, if you have an individual who, I mean, this is a, this is a difficult question because we're talking about people who may absolutely have no way to fight to stay here. Mm -hmm. And so if, if the bottom drops out of DACA and there's no alternative for these individuals, then it's hard for me to encourage someone to hire a lawyer um, and spend lots of money if, if they're just ultimately negotiating leaving at a certain point. Now, I think a lawyer can be useful in that. But I would say in a certain situation where you have someone that you consult with, um, you make sure you know what, if any other options you have, and then you have someone you're able to sort of call when needed or step in if ice shows up or potentially go to court with you to negotiate just sort of that simple outcome that you talked about or buy more time or buy more time then you're then then I think it would be safe to save between three and five thousand dollars okay now just to little wrap up and soften the tone here <laughs> if you could invite three people to have dinner with you uh who would you invite and what's one attribute or quality that you adm would admire about each of these people it's a really good question. Um, there's so many people. Do they have to be alive? No. Okay. <laughs> I did have in parentheses dead or alive, but somebody, well, I don't want to meet with that person. <laughs> well, the first person that comes to mind is, is, is not alive. So, so number one on my list would be Maya Angelou. Um, and I mean, quite frankly, the first three people that pop into my mind would be Maya Angelou, President Obama, and um, Justice Ginsburg. 
And quite frankly, they, I mean, they all three kind of share the similar qualities of why I would want to meet with them. They have all fought tirelessly for the rights of people um, and faced an incredible amount of adversity for doing so. They've been hated and treated quite terribly. And and in my mind, all three of them, in, in different ways and in different parts of society at different times, have sort of risen above that. And I would say the qualities that they have that I just really admire are integrity, um, bravery, and perseverance. Um, without people like them setting the model for the rest of us and, and doing it. I mean, the integrity piece for me, being able to be... Um, called names and, and I mean, so many terrible things to themselves and their families and still rising above it and being positive and spreading messages and fight, fight, fighting. I mean, to the end, I just, I would, what a dream dinner that would be. <laughs> uh, okay. Here's the fun one. What is, what is something that most people don't know about, don't know about you? That's a really tough question because I'm kind of an open book. I don't really what might surprise people about me, the people that know me best know this, but what might surprise the rest of the people mm -hmm. around me is, is how sensitive I am. Mm -hmm. I'm quite a strong appearing person. I, I am a strong person, but I come off very, um, I can be quite intimidating when people meet me and I, I'm, I'm not a super bubbly smiling person. And so I think people think of me as probably like a stone wall sort of. And, and the truth is that I am one of the most sensitive emotional person, people that I know. I mean, I cry all the time. Everything around me affects me and I don't have to have experienced it to just burst into tears. I can easily kind of put myself in someone else's situation, even if I've never been in any way exposed to that experience and, and somehow feel what they may be feeling or, or think what it may be like. And, and I mean, I think that sensitivity is both a good and bad thing for me probably mm -hmm. helps with what I do, but it's also difficult because I suffer a lot through things. But I think a lot of people would never imagine the amount of sort of crying and sadness and sensitivity that I have underneath my really kind of tough yeah. exterior. You know, a, a lot of people are going under anxiety and there is a lot of tension in the communities because of the election. But I would imagine that for you, even though the stress and the tension has increased because now you have a higher volume of cases and questions and people looking to you for answers, but you've been dealing with very difficult, heartbreaking stories in many different uh, aspects of immigration. Uh, that, I can't imagine, I mean, that has to be hard on you, even you're working on the legal part of it. How do you, what do you do to stay motivated? Yeah. I mean, I try to maintain a really, um, I think it gives me perspective, which means that I have the ability to be to, to watch and, and learn and see things that are quite devastating. And, and I can sort of internalize that and realize how incredibly fortunate and blessed I am and, and that I have um, a privilege and a, and a, I've been given so much to be able to make a difference that I can sort of, um, I, I just use it for fuel in some ways. And I just try to always keep in mind, you know, what, why I'm doing this. And, and don't get me wrong, there are days where I think this is so hard. And if I have one more heartbreaking story, I just might fall apart. But the truth is that this, the community that I serve gives me more than I give them. 
I mean, by far what I have learned and what I get to experience is, is an amazing piece of what I do. It keeps me going. And I just, I, you know, I, I believe in fighting for rights and being an advocate. And I've seen the results that that makes in the community, not just for me, but for all the people around me that are doing similar work. And it just, it has to keep, it has to keep happening. So in some ways, the more I see, the harder it is, the more I want to fight. And that's what we'll keep doing. Um, final question. Uh, and this is the purpose of this question is to give people a way to contribute back to you in whatever you're working. So what's one thing that you are working on, whether it's with your firm or something that you are thinking of doing that the people who are listening to this right now could do to support you? Well, both professionally and personally for me right now, and this is a question that's really pertinent just because of, as you mentioned, the election this week, what I've been thinking a lot about, what I would encourage people to do, um, which doesn't necessarily per se help me, but just in general moving forward through all of this is to, to continue to, um, talk to each other and listen to each other and believe each other in our experiences. And I, I think that the human condition of sort of, um, having to go through it in order to understand it or be a part of it is, is a really sad thing. And I would, what I would encourage your listeners to do is to, to, to look around them and in some situations, find the people that are the least like them and, and engage in that. Because I think if we start sitting and breaking bread with people who we have nothing in common with, we will not be able to continue this sort of fear and hate that's going on. That's driving so much of what we've talked about today, the laws and the, and the, um, you know, the removal of individuals. And, and if the community feels differently about these things, I think we, we, won't, we won't elect someone that, that wants to do this. We won't be driven by this fear. And so I would just encourage people to look around at the communities outside of them, the people who may not have the most similarities to them, and just try to expose each other to, you know, the beautiful differences between whatever it is, their cultures, their races, their languages. And, and for those people who continue to be sort of held down and feel disparaged by this election or the people around them who live in places where they're not celebrated, I think to just rise above it and continue to not let people have a, any reason to say the things that they do and, and to just keep working together as a community. And I think if we all do that, then not just immigration, but so many other problems could potentially mm -hmm. be solved by being collectively um, minded. A What's the best place to learn more about uh, your firm? So we have a website, globaljusticelawgroup.com, mm -hmm. and it has all sorts of information, both about us and also resources for people. We have a blog. Um, we also have a Facebook page. And so any of those places, you can, you can both hear stories about what's going on with immigrants nationwide, as well as the work that we do. Are you personally active in any social media channels where others could follow uh, your work? So just getting that be in touch with you. We, I mean, our, our, the, 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 as active as I am through my immigration practices is through our, our website, um, and, and the Facebook page. Okay. Um, we do have a Twitter account and we also, our blog goes through, through Twitter, but that's mostly the, the method with, with which I spread things about immigration and, and mm -hmm. the stories that I hear and what we're working on. Okay. And I'll make sure to include those in the show notes. Shannon, this is it. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you as well.
And that was my interview with Shannon Underwood. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash bts008. Again, that's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y slash bts008. Finally, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a positive review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to live a life that moves you.